This is God's Word in Exodus 23. It was written a long time ago. And this is one of those great passages where it's easy for us to understand that it was written for a specific context, a specific group of people, the Israelites. The beautiful thing about having an all-knowing and infinitely wise God is that He also wrote it for you today with you in mind. This is God's Word. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. That your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention. It's all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall, sorry, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. <coughs> Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. 
But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. This is my favorite. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray. Lord, yet again, we thank you for difficult passages. Passages that we see and go, well, that's easy for them to think about and certainly difficult for us. We pray that you would give us understanding and insight that your spirit would work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this might be it. It probably is it, I'm assuming, actually. The last Sunday before things get very inconvenient. Some of you actually might be saying it's already inconvenient. There are nine empty seats in the building. You don't have a seat for your Bible or your elbows. Maybe you're thinking it's already inconvenient. Lord willing, though, I'm hoping this is the last Sunday before the silt fence goes up. Some of you might have noticed if you were paying attention, we're missing a a couple of trees over on that side of the building. By that, I mean a couple of dozen. And the land is starting to change. We've got the guys here and doing all of the work. We're starting the process of moving dirt. And uh, as we've been talking this week, talking with the guys who've been out here working, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that I might have actually undersold the inconvenience a little bit. (laughs) Not intentionally, rather as I'm beginning to kind of see how things are working, might have undersold it a little bit. Thinking about for the kiddos, how normally they run outside and play. You can't do that now because you can't play on the equipment. Kids don't play on the equipment. Parents don't let them. You can't play in the pine straw. Kids don't play in the pine straw. Parents don't let them. The silt fence, if you didn't figure out that's what the stakes are, are going to be like right here on the edges of the building. We're going to have one blocking off the two parking lots so that getting to the gravel from the gravel to here where I park, you have to walk all the way around, which is fine when it's beautiful like today. 
It will be exciting when it rains. Like I said, I expect it's probably going to be a bit more inconvenient than I might have originally mentioned. And I recognize that when things are inconvenient, it's easy for us to maybe get a little grumpy. Oh, maybe I'm just speaking of myself. Maybe this is me just outing my own habits or personality or such, but able to get a little bit grumpy, the me monster can show up and I can be cantankerous that it's not the way I want. I was joking this week if we might need to, we could probably pay for the building if we auctioned off the the parking places closest. Why on earth would a session think it's the best course of action to lead us into something that could be so wonderfully inconvenient and be so easy to sin in? I mean, usually those are the kind of things that sessions are like, you know, um, I like to avoid opportunities for the congregation to get grumpy needlessly. I like to avoid opportunities for us to be severely inconvenienced. I don't really like Sundays being any more challenging than they already are. What would make a session lead intentionally into that? Well, you obviously know the answer, right? Because the solution, the end is so great that we're willing to go through the inconvenience. We're willing to say, you know what, walking around the silt fence when it's raining and hopefully not raining sideways, uh, that's going to be inconvenient, but it's worth it because we're moving dirt and God willing, as money continues to pour in, which God is doing, we'll have a building where you might actually for a couple of weeks have a seat for your Bible. (laughs) We look at the end goal and we say, This end goal is so great, it's so good, I'm willing to undergo the things that don't make me feel good. I thought about using like an exercise illustration for that, but most of us, we don't value the end goal enough for it to matter. The exercise is so unpleasant that we're like, nah, I'm not interested in that. Chapter 23 of Exodus is a similar type of argument that God is giving to his people. He's framing out for them the final part of his kind of covenant terms. He's given them the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And now in uh, end of 20, into 21, 22, and now into 23, he's finishing out kind of the case law connected to it. The explanations, the ways that Israel is supposed to function as a nation. And some of these you would think would be very helpful and very good and very easy. Some of them, if you're going to be really honest and kind of rubber hit the road, might be a little bit more difficult. Chapter 23 begins with one I think is very challenging. In these first verses, verses 1 through 9, God frames out for them laws that they had to follow as a nation. For us, it's 
the pattern for obedience, a principle that we follow, and it's this. Your emotions are good, but your emotions are less important than holiness. It's a reoccurring theme. It's a point that was made almost uh, similarly a couple of weeks ago. But your emotions are good. Your desires are good. It's important to know that God has made us as creatures that are built this way. But they're secondary to holiness, to purity, to obedience. You see, verses 1 through 9 are all case law specifically connected to either lying or stealing or things of the sort like that. But they're all kind of framing out situations where I might be inclined to feel like I don't want to help. I don't want to be useful. I don't want to do the right thing. You shall not spread a false report. Well, why would you give a false report? My uh, preaching professor in seminary used to say, you know what a gossip is? A gossip is a person who only tells the truth when it will hurt worse. That's a great definition. I've remembered that for 15 years. Great definition. A gossip is a person who will only tell the truth when it hurts worse. They think they have something to gain by lying, and so they do so because it makes them feel good about something. Verse 2 frames us into another illustration. Many of you probably, this might be the story of your childhood, right? You shall not fall in with the many who wish to do evil. Don't follow the crowd. When they want to go be evil and do evil things, please don't listen to them. Children, please pay attention to this. I promise you it will make your life a million times better if you learn this now. Even if the crowd is going to do something wicked and it will make you uncomfortable to say no, it's still better to say no. The second part of 2 into verse 3, relationship with the poor. Maybe you might feel guilty for the poor, and so instead of giving them accurate justice, maybe you might show favoritism toward them. We see later in this section, you show favoritism against them. Maybe you feel guilty about how they got to that situation, and so you want to be extra kind to them or maybe not kind enough. I think it shows up more clearly in verses 4 and 5. For if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray. So, <coughs> excuse me, your enemy has an animal, a work animal. It's part of their livelihood. It's part of what they would use to have their income. And the animal has behaved as animals do and has gotten away. If you see it, what are you supposed to do? Well, it's your enemy. The text is clear. Maybe you might make a really loud noise so it gets going a little faster, right? I mean, that neighbor drives me crazy. I'm done with how he conducts himself. I'm done with his antics. He was so rude to me. You know what? Maybe he'll be a little bit less rude if he has to walk to Virginia to find his donkey. (laughs) Just saying, maybe it'll work. No, what does the scripture say? To follow God's law, your your obedience to him surpasses your desires, your emotions, your preferences, your pettiness. 
It doesn't feel good. It feels good to make your enemy's life harder, to make it more difficult to be just that little bit of passive-aggressively nasty to them. But that's not godly. Five is even more clear. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you'll refrain from leaving him with it. You'll rescue it with him. This is an illustration that maybe the, the enemy overloaded the donkey. It's too heavy. Or the donkey got tired and tried to lay down for whatever dumb reason that would be. Or maybe it slipped and fell over and it got on its side. Which for us, we think, well, that's no big deal. You know, for us, we posable thumbs, we take the burden off, we get up, we pick it back up. For animals, that's fatal. Uh, with sheep, another illustration with sheep is sometimes sheep will, will actually get so pregnant and so rotund, uh, they're not really clever. They lay down and then they get flipped over on their back and then they can't get back over. I'm talking about sheep. <laughs> and the thing is, is it's fatal. If they get stuck on their back while they're pregnant, it will kill both the mother and the baby sheep inside because it's part of how the Lord's made them with their uh, circulatory system and such. They have to be back over on their feet fairly rapidly. And so here you have the illustration of an Israelite who's walking through the field and maybe sees a donkey that's flipped over. You could, for our understanding, it's easier to think of sheep. You see a sheep flipped over and you think, well, I know that's Roger's. And I hate Roger. Roger has been a jerk to me every day. I hope there are no Rogers in here. I picked a name that I thought no one would have. Roger's been a jerk to me all week. I hate that guy. He hates me. You know what? Serves him right. This is what he gets for being a bad man. I hope it happens to him. It feels good, doesn't it? Our little pettiness, that little bit of vindictiveness just coming out. And the Lord says, no. No, holiness is more important than your little pettiness. Holiness is more important than your little silly desires. Holiness is more important than even what might feel good in the moment. The bribe shows up later. Again, it's the same concept of doing what feels good in the moment at the expense of holiness, at the expense of righteousness, at the expense of justice. Hopefully you see as this is framed out, this is such an important way to think about life for Christians. That Holiness is more important than those emotions, those passions, and those desires. Because when I say it that way, you, most of us probably think, well, I mean, yeah, I would agree with that, obviously. I mean, when, when you say it that way. But when we start talking about this kind of rubber hit the road in other conversations, we probably may be a little bit inconsistent about that. I mean, if we were to ask it kind of in Sunday school, if I were to have a conversation starter and say, what's the most important thing about being a Christian? Not like understanding the gospel, I get that, but like, what's your target goal? Why are you a Christian? Why has God made you one? Why has he saved you? What has he saved you to? How many of us would answer questions, provide answers that in some way connect to those same passions, those same desires, those same pleasures? 
God's made me a Christian so that I'm happier. I've heard that. God's made me a Christian so that my life is better. God has made me a Christian. This whole Christianity thing is so that I can live in the world. So that I have my better life now. So that I can exist in a better state. So that I'll go to heaven. And all those things in some ways are right in some ways. But it's interesting how much they miss such big picture things. God has saved me for holiness. He saved me for obedience. He saved me for godliness. That's a big picture target that I'm aiming for. It's, in fact, actually, I would contend one of the two. The second one we're going to see in point three of the sermon. It's the target. We have this all throughout the scriptures. You've been saved for good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. And the reality of the matter is, is that we all hold this kind of in some sort of concept until it gets tested, doesn't it? Until we have a situation like this where the silt fence is up and you have to figure out how to navigate it in a sideways South Carolina rain that may or may not be hailing in August for whatever reason. Until things get inconvenient or the things that I value, that I like, that are important to me get crossed. Until we have mauve chairs in the new building. That's where the rubber hits the road and we have to go, well, what actually is my value? What is more important? Am I actually valuing what feels good or am I valuing the holiness, the purity that I am called to live in? That's Paul's argument in Colossians 3. That's why we read it earlier. Look, God saved you. Christ has died for you. You are already raised in him. And because you are this new creature in him, you have a new nature and you are to live according to the new purity that you have been given. Well, I love if we're honest about that. Again, if we're honest, I would suggest a lot of us are dishonest about that, actually. That we really, really want to live what makes us feel good. We just want to live in a version of that that's baptized in holiness, we think. But if we're honest about it, in saying that the target that I'm aiming for is obedience to God, even if it doesn't feel good, the target I'm aiming for is obedience to God, the immediate second thought that should pop in your mind is, how on earth is that possible? How on earth is that possible? Because my passions are so strong and God's power in me seems so small. And I love how uh, the Lord seems to have this kind of progress built into his argument here in chapter 23. He provides a very clear answer to them. It's one that we probably would not expect if you haven't thought about it. Of the Ten Commandments, anybody have a guess? Don't answer out loud. This is all just for your brain. 
of the Ten Commandments, which does God talk about the most? I will give you a hint. It is not number one. It is not number two. Those are the me alone, no idols. It's not number six and number seven, murdering and adultery. It's the Sabbath. Weirdly enough, out of all the commandments, the one that God talks about the most is the Sabbath. And it's intriguing here how when he goes to present the next section, kind of in his argument, the pinnacle he's building to, if we're going to think about it with a mechanism to help us, he here immediately jumps onto the principle of the Sabbath. Built into the rhythm of life, the very fabric of creation is the idea of the Sabbath. It's in fact, actually, that's one of those great ordination questions. Uh, Ten Commandments are given in both Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. What's the difference in how they're recorded? One of them connects the Sabbath all the way to creation prior to the fall, and the other one doesn't because the Sabbath is so important. Here, this whole section is laying out how the Sabbath was to define all of Israel. Verse 10, six years you shall sow your land, gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. Again, we do not live in agrarian society, so most of us are like, cool, like right on God, that's, that's nice of you to take care of the poor. Wow. Put this in modern language. Go to a restaurant and say, for six weeks... You shall sell food, and for the seventh, just give it away for free. Now, if you were a restaurant owner and that's what God said to you, how would you feel about that? Would you be excited about that? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because you would immediately panic that your profits just disappeared. That one-seventh of your income just disappeared. And that's exactly what God intended. We don't exactly know how they implemented this. (coughs) Excuse me. Obviously, it didn't make the most sense. Our best guess is that each farmer got to choose which year was his year off. So that I took 2019 off so that the poor could come and feast on my land. And Joe, who always sits there and is always my illustration, but won't sit there next week, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Joe would take 2020 off so that the poor could eat off of his land next year. And then Sean would take 2021 off and you just rotate through. Maybe that was part of how they did it. Maybe I kept the Western field for 2019 and the Eastern field for 2020. I I don't know. But the idea being that one in seven was just taken off so that the land could heal, so the poor had a place to live, so that the animals could eat, and so that the worker could rest. And it's interesting because we don't see the connection, but the word Sabbath, the the root of the word Sabbath, Sabbath is kind of the noun version, it's nominalized, of the verb to stop. That's what it is. It's to stop. One day in seven to stop. We translate it to rest, 
to take a break. It's re-articulated in verse 12. Six days work, work hard, seventh day rest, that your animals and your servants and your workers and everybody could be rest. Thirteen, so that you can worship. And then fourteen, as part of this Sabbath rest, you have three feasts in the Old Testament to prepare you for Jesus. These three feasts to prepare you for Jesus would effectively become... One of them would be transformed into the Lord's Supper. One of them would be celebrated at Pentecost. And the other one kind of disappears. But two of them explicitly preparing us for the arrival of Christ. It's interesting how the Lord explains it. If you want to value purity, if you want to value holiness more than your emotions, more than your desires, more than what feels good... It's almost like the Lord understands that we're creatures of habit. And it's almost like the Lord understands that the best victories are the ones that are done incrementally over 50 years. And not in one grand flourish. I'll read my entire Bible this week and then not read it for two decades afterwards. That's great. You won't remember any of it. I'll study a half a chapter every day for the next two decades. And we all know the kids' song, don't we? Read your Bible day every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Again, the Lord here is framing out how is it that you have victory over sin in this way? How is it that you have victory over those sinful desires? How do you have victory over those good desires that get too big? It's reorienting your life, your schedule, and your calendar around him. I would say probably the postmodern version of that, the 2019 version of this is to say, Pastor, I want to grow, but I'm just so busy I can't have time to read my Bible or to go to church or to spend time with Christians or to go to Bible study or to do anything that pertains to my spirituality. At which point I say, you're you're busy at the wrong things. You're busy at the wrong things. I thought about, do I go through the things that we see those happening the most? Those ways where we fall into it. And I'll touch on one and one only. Youth sports... I'll say it because this is the prime of life that my family would easily, could easily be involved in and fall into. But it's so easy for us to value something good, like teamwork, competition, and exercise, and to let it expand and explode so much that it interrupts the rhythms of holiness in the home. So that Sunday ceases to be Sunday, so that children are so busy they can't study their Bibles and their parents are so exhausted that they can't study their Bibles and no one has chance to be involved at church. Most of you don't know this, I guess, but I was an athlete in high school. I think my junior year I played five sports in one season. 
I mean, five sports in one year, one calendar year. I lettered in three. I was an athlete through and through, and I will tell you 100% that is my experience. Youth sports that I loved and were good in many ways hindered my growth, not helped it. A good and noble thing left unchecked and unoriented around the rhythms that God has designed was detrimental to my heart. That's just one I picked. There's probably a thousand others. There were at least ten more that I could have talked about, but I still wanted to have a job tomorrow. And you think about it again, okay, so if, if purity is supposed to surpass my passions, the only way to have kind of the strength to be able to do that is to orient the entirety of my life around you know, God's rhythm, God's schedule, God's calendar. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Maybe I just don't feel like doing that. I mean, maybe that's just not enough. Maybe that's just not, maybe, that's just, maybe it's just not good enough. I mean, I hate to say it, I mean, we would never say this out loud. In fact, out of all the crazy things I've heard in 15 years of pastoring, I've never heard that sentence. Well, maybe God's just not good enough. Maybe it's not that great. But it is interesting, that's actually what God anchors the final part of the conversation with. It's like he knows us, almost like that. To know that when he gives hard commands that are going to inconvenience our sin nature. When he gives hard commands that will require sacrifice and difficulty, he gives us a mechanism to accomplish it, organizing our entire life on his schedule. And then he provides motivation. Verses 20 through 33 are some of the sweetest promises delivered at this point in human history. Now, we read them today and we're like, who cares? I mean, some of these were like, oh, that, I mean, God's going to send hornets. That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, how many times have we dreamed of a gun that shoots bees or something of the sort like that? And God does it. But these promises at this point in human history, if we, if we understand what they're framed in, the history in which they're delivered, these are some of the sweetest promises said at this point in human history. No one has heard better things than these, maybe except for Abraham. Behold, I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you the place that I have prepared. Just pause for a moment and think about who's listening to that and how special that is. A nation of homeless people. Hear me, that is what Israel is right now. It is a nation of homeless folks. And God's saying, I'm going to send my special angel who isn't even going to tell you about the place. He's going to take you there. And he's going to take you there safely. And he's going to take you to a place of peace and rest. If you obey him, verse 22, and do what I say, then I will be an enemy to all your enemies. Again, be reminded who's saying this to them. They're not reading this on a page. They're hearing this at the foot of Sinai with 
earthquakes and lightning and thunder. And if the cows step on the mountain, you have to kill them because it's terrifying. Remember, it's so scary at this point. The people said, we're out. We're going to go sit over here. Moses, you go talk to God. We can't do it because he's too scary. And here you have God saying, it was scary. I got her. Here you have God saying, look, if you obey, part of the promises is when you go to that home that I take you to, I will be your army. I will be your defender. This scary God that you're terrified to be next to, and I'm your father, I'll fight all your enemies for you. I'll shoot bees at them if I have to. I mean, what a promise. How special is that, that God will be their avenging army? He'll blot out the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites. He'll blot them out. Which again, you think about for us today, that's like, well, big whoop. Well, you know why we say big whoop? Because God blotted them out. Because when he said it, they were a big deal. A huge deal. This would have been like in the Cold War, God saying, I'm going to take care of the communists. And you're like, is that possible? Surely no one can do that. And you know, decades later, well, okay, fair enough. The Lord's going to take care of them all. He's going to be their defender. Then you get into amazing, amazing promises in 25 and following. <coughs> I'll bless your bread and water and take sickness away from you. Whoa. None shall miscarry or be barren. I'm going to tell you right now, there are a few promises more tender than this at this moment. I mean, childbirth in that time was so significant because not only was it the the, the, the sweetness of just childbirth, parenting. But it was also intimately connected to livelihood. You know, if you were a woman who could not have children in this age, you were a woman who was probably going to die destitute and alone unless God provided. Financial disaster. It's why you see so many of the false religions around that area were fertility cults trying to trick the false gods into providing children because kids were unbelievably important. They were your retirement. They were your retirement home. They were your workforce. They were your income, much less your beloved children. No more miscarriage. No more barrenness. God will be their provider. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you. I don't know what that means. That word's not used very often in the scriptures, that word terror. When it is used in this way, it's only used to refer to a handful of things, a couple of them from like Job and such. The teeth of a crocodile and the roar of a lion. The Lord is describing himself that way and saying, that's what I'm going to be to the land. What sweet promises that God is going to care for his people. He'll drive out the enemies. And then I love how, how intimate he is with it. And he says, look, I'm going to take care of all of your enemies, but I'm not going to do it all at once. 
Because if I did it all at once, the land would just fall into ruin and it would be just as bad in the end as when I started. Instead, I'm going to go a little bit at a time so you can take over the land and get established. Again, it's almost like he knows us. (coughs) And I would say it finally like this. There's a progression that we're looking at in this sermon. Purity, holiness, surpassing our emotions, our passions, our desires. That is accomplished. The mechanism of that being accomplished is God's rhythm for humanity. It's shaping our existence, our week, our day, our lives around his schedule. But finally, the the anchor for our minds and our hearts through that all is to cling to his promises. Again, we do not make a big enough deal about God's promises. Think again, again, the nation that he's giving this promise to. They are, I mean, we could lovingly say there are, you know, many of them are spiritual family. They're losers at this point. I mean, they've been brought out of Egypt. They're slaves. They had to go to war the first time. They didn't even have any weapons to do so. They didn't have an army. They've grumbled and complained the entire way at this point. And the Lord is just so tenderly saying, look, I know you're weak. Listen to my promises. Listen to my promises. And I would say very briefly, three applications. First, some of us are not fighting that first battle at all. Right? The first point that purity, holiness is to surpass our emotions, our feelings, our desires. Some of us are not fighting that battle. Instead, some of us were throwing gasoline on our emotions, our passions, and our desires, and that is not good. I will say that because I recognize as a pastor, I'm getting ready to help with my other fellow elders shepherd a congregation into a season of difficulty. If you're constantly fueling your passions and your desires and your pleasures, you're about to have a rough go and you're about to make my life a lot more difficult as well as the people sitting next to you. Don't do that. Further, if your children in the room, please learn now. Don't just do whatever feels good. Do what God tells you at all costs. It will make your life better. Others of us are doing that. We're fighting the good fight, but realistically, we don't feel like we're having a great deal of victory. And I would encourage you with this. Set your rhythms around God's rhythms. And then trust him. So often those growths happen the way that children grow. Parents don't see it very frequently. The kids, you know, the same. However, if you go visit a a friend's kids you haven't seen in three months or six months, whoa, they're huge. What happens? They grow and they see the growth when we're separated for a season. We ourselves don't see it. Set yourself that rhythm and rest in God. Define your world by his patterns and rest in him. And then lastly, for those of us that are most weak and weary in the room, go to his promises. Again, he knows you. He's made you. He cares for you. If you can't see it, it doesn't matter. Go to his promises. 
If you're discouraged, it doesn't matter. Go to his promises. If you're wounded, it doesn't matter. Go to his promises. It is the fuel to keep you through the rough times. Because what happens is you run out of gas, you just go back to those previous passions. It won't be good. Go to the promises of God that you may find peace and gladness and rest. The fullness of God and his pleasure and the spirit of God working in us. Go to the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even these amazingly challenging passages that teach us truth for today. Oh, Lord, fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.